Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dobwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about improvisation in role-playing games. Before we get into all that though, we've been to a cow. A concrete one. Yes, the local games convention called Concrete Cow in Milton Keynes took place one week ago today. Yeah, what did we get up to? We had a few guests over from the US, which was nice. Sean Murphy and his wife Elizabeth came all the way over from Maine. I'd like to say they came over just for Concrete Cow, but no, no, they were doing some sightseeing in London as well. I did suggest he visit Salisbury, because I hear that's a really nice place. But <laughs> well, the, the cathedral particularly, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, draws a lot of people in. Well, we played a selection of games. I played a hack of Stormbringer in the morning, which right. was fun with Ralph Lovegrove, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then in the afternoon, I ran a Call of Cthulhu game. I ran Unhealthy Occupation, which I talked about at Necronomicon last year when we had to pick our favourite scenarios. So I thought, well, you know, I've talked about it, so why not run it? That's by Adam Gauntlet, is it? It sure is, yes, yeah. yes. How about you, Matt? What did you get up to? Yeah. I ran Cult in the Morning, Cult Divinity Lost, using the uh, the new rule set, because the book's finally going to be coming out as of uh, November this year. And then played the uh, this new hipster game in the afternoon called Sleeping the Resting. <laughs> um, after finding that we had more games on offer than there were players. So uh, with one sign up, I decided to take the opportunity to go home and thinking, yeah, maybe half three in the morning prepping wasn't a good idea. Sleep now is more fun. <laughs> half three in the morning, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, and I ran some Pop Cthulhu and playtest of a Call of Cthulhu scenario I'm, I'm developing at the moment, tentatively called The Drawing of the Sap, which uh, went down really well. Now, today is also a day of great importance because it is September the 22nd, Mr. Sanderson's birthday, and I have a small gift for him all the way from Gen Con, which I'm going to toss over to what? him now and hope that he can catch. I, I'm not going to catch! Okay, no, I, I can catch. I, I hope it's not, not wasn't fragile. Yeah. It's oh. a small gold cube. Mm. A couple of inches square. It rattles. Mm. That's oh, a very cute-looking lament configuration, isn't it? <laughs> now, whilst if, Matt unwraps it... If change starts shooting out of this, I'm not going to be too happy. I will just say that I was actually in a game with somebody and they had one of these... And when I saw what it was and they explained it to me, I was like, okay, I know the exact person for this. This guy needs one of these. I'm failing at undoing this. Matt, I didn't wrap it that tightly. (laughs) (laughs) Right, it's coming open. I can see stripes. Now he's going to wonder what it is for a moment. Yeah, I... hmm. It's wooden. It's... uh, Oh! (laughs) The bottom gives it away. The Dice Devil's Trap. <laughs> oh, let's see if I can read the uh, rest of that. Is it supposed it's, to suck the bad luck out of your dice or something? Uh, or? If, if your dice consistently roll low, yeah, they may be possessed by a devil. <laughs> this devil's trap, designed specifically for dice, will trap the devil, banishing it from your die. Place possessed die in the cage and put the devil's trap on top. Allow to sit a sufficient amount of time before releasing the die. Danger. 
Extremely strong devils may require multiple banishments. <laughs> yeah, the, oh, the only problem great. I can see with this, Matt, is it's all your dice. And the consistent uh-huh. factor there isn't the dice, it's you. <laughs> so so we need one that's large enough for Matt to We need a bigger in. box, yeah. is what you're saying. Going to yeah, need a big okay. boat. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, like, <laughs> make, yeah like, like one of those packing crates they use for, for shipping yeah. animals around. Yeah. One of those with... Like the one at the end of um, Indiana Jones. Yes. We'd see Matt being wheeled off into a warehouse. <laughs> being looked after by top men. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. Well, I hope yeah. that proves useful, and you'll have to let us know how reliably it works. Well, th- this is this is going to become part of my like, standard GM kit now. It's just going to sat on the table. Yeah. In front of me. <laughs> and on that subject of misbehaving dice, I should also bring to your attention, and perhaps also the attention, more importantly, of the listeners, of Seth Skorkowski's recent video oh, did you see yes. the one about the rubber chicken. chicken's foot i was gonna say chicken oh yes feet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah that was rather lovely i think we should link that in the episode because that's yes. the work of comedy genius <laughs> yes and i did think again of matt <laughs> funnily enough yeah i watched that and went i need a row of chicken now or, or 10 yeah <laughs> and now on to our main topic improvisation in rpgs and this is something that I heard from a number of players, well, particularly GMs over the years. They're nervous about the idea of improvising at the table. I guess improvisation is one of the most vital skills, not just to GMs, but to players, that we, we need to you know, be comfortable with just making stuff up. It certainly presents challenges, I think, making stuff up on the fly. But I would like to start by pointing out that if you've ever sat down and played a role-playing game, you've almost certainly improvised. Because if you're a player, you've got a character sheet, you don't have scripted words on there to say, so you've improvised your dialogue. And if you're the GM, you've read the scenario, and again, you've made up what the NPC said. You've probably made up things about the room. It's important to appreciate that almost certainly... As a role player, all the time you are improvising. Just there's kind of a sliding scale, I would say, from the simplest improvisation, as we've just described, to what we'll go on to talk about. But You mean when you're playing a role-playing game, you don't turn up with a full script of everything you're going to say? I've, I've been wasting all that time for you years. Have. I know, I've seen your notes, Scott. Yeah, and you're very good at disguising the fact that you're just reading the words off a piece of paper mm. on your lap. Yeah. And we have touched on areas of this before, so this will be a complimentary episode to uh, episode 33 particularly, which was on player-led games. And also, we, we touched on bits of this with our beginnings, middles and ends episodes, which were episodes 91 to 93. So I guess it divides into two categories, perhaps, improvisation. One is as a player, and the other is as a GM. So should we start with GMs? Because that's, I think, the main onus is usually viewed as being on GMs to improvise and be creative Mm. with the stuff they present. Yeah, and I think the most common experience is probably when the players do something completely unexpected. Say you're you're running a pre-written scenario or, or something you've written yourself, and you get to a certain stage where the assumption in the scenario is, all right, at this stage, the investigators are going to go off to Arkham and they'll look at this. And it's sort of, well, actually, no, they've picked up on this red herring and they're going to go off to Kingsport and, and start poking around the strange high house in the mist, even though you know that's nothing to do with what's going on. 
Now, at that stage, you've always got the option as a GM of saying, well, actually, guys, no, yeah, this, this isn't really what the scenario is about. But that's a bit sucky. That will, I think, deflate the player's enthusiasm pretty quickly. If you've got the confidence to run with it and, and you know, make something interesting happen there, I think that's more satisfying. I think as a player looking at a gm that is making stuff up i never really want to know they're making stuff mm. up i want to feel that this is part of the scenario and if i say i'm going to go to the library or actually i'm going to go out in the street and take up the manhole cover and go down in the sewers and get there that way i want to get the feeling that actually this is all part of the world it was all not necessarily planned but it's all sort of part of a cohesive whole i don't want to know when i'm kind of going off piste and the GM is just making stuff up. Suddenly then I feel I've kind of gone off the page. Hmm. I always want that sort of assurance and illusion that's still part of it. So as a GM, I think if you're having to make stuff up, how do we make that as convincing as the rest of the scenario that was already planned, I guess is my question. Yeah, one of the best examples of this I ever saw was a convention game I played oh, some years back at Tentacles, and it was Loz Whitaker running it. It was a game of Stormbringer. It was a system and a background, obviously, he knew very well. And he set up this situation where we were a bunch of people who were going off and dealing with one of the canon NPCs and trying to undermine his evil plans. He'd had certain assumptions about what we were going to do in terms of, kind of physically going to the location and perhaps doing some politicking or you know some some backstabbing or whatever. But in the pregens that he'd given us, one of the characters had the ability to walk in people's dreams, and so we as a group looked at this and said, "Oh, actually, no. A much better idea is to see whether we can infiltrate his dreams and subtly change his mind that way." And he hadn't prepared for any of that, but because you know he knew the situation and the NPC very well, he managed to sit down and pretty seamlessly improvise what turned out to be an entire session based on that. And were you aware that he was improvising this, or did he discuss it with you afterwards and point this out? He discussed it afterwards, mm. yeah. So at the time, it, it did seem like you know he'd had all this prepared, and, and he, he went into such detail with certain aspects of it that it seemed very much at the time that, yeah, we must be following the scenario. You know, I think this was a testament to how well he improvised it. So clearly, when the players do something unexpected, that's a cause for the GM to respond and create something on the fly. I suppose also not just what the players choose to do, but also dice rolls can yeah. result in unexpected consequences or unexpected events in the game so well, if somebody rolls a critical success or a critical failure at a certain point that can lead to unexpected things happening and it may require the gm to improvise i remember you having exactly this happen with a game you ran at concrete cow some years back when you ran cadenza there oh there's a particular moment in the scenario where it's more of a moment of foreshadowing that you get a glimpse of something that happens. And one of our dear players, Lynn, decided to run straight at it. And, of course, thinking, oh, you've got to get an extreme dex roll to be able to catch up with this guy. Otherwise, he's not going to be there. Now, what happens? There goes the crit. Ah, right. Let's have a little chat off to one side here. And, yeah, a couple of, again, other ends of the bell curve rolls later gets pretty much the whole download of what's happening in the setting, what the background is to the scenario, and it went a very different way, but a very fun way. Mm. But, yeah, it's a question of having the confidence of being able to deal with that at the time when it comes up. 
Well, I think that's a good illustration, Matt, actually, of as a GM, if you put stakes on the table, like you just said, it has to be an extreme role. So we're talking it's very unlikely. But if you succeed in this role, this thing could happen. And if you're going to say this thing could happen, even if it's like you need to roll, you know, you've got a 1% chance, you're putting that on the table and mm. you know that you might have to go there with the story. That's almost another thing I would say is the GM sort of throwing out options, thinking they won't happen, but they might. Another example of when you might want to improvise as a GM is if you have pickup games. So I don't know whether either of you have been in this position before, but where, you know, maybe you're at a convention, maybe you're at a friend's house and someone says, oh, yeah, I fancy playing a game and you don't have anything prepared. But whether you can just run with your memories of something or come up with something new on the fly and just basically improvise a game on the spot. I mean, I've done that a few times. Have either of you had that experience? I think some games lend themselves to that. I wouldn't do that with Call of Cthulhu, but I'd do it with some of the other kind of indie games that very much lend themselves to improvisation. This is why I have nicely, neatly catalogued series of one-shots that I can just pull open a cabinet, reach in, grab a box, and there's everything for me. Laminated sheets, handouts, scenario notes, bullet point overviews that I can hand it out to players, and while they're reading the backgrounds, or dossiers, I can then read my summary of my notes and go, oh yeah, I remember what's happening here, and then I'll run it. Whereas, yeah, I'm quite happy. I remember a free slot at a convention some years back. And I didn't have anything prepared for it or any character sheets. Uh, said, you know, we use Cthulhu Dark because it doesn't require much in the way of stats. You know, I just had an idea for an opening scene and we sat there and played it for about three hours. And, you know, I reckon as long as I've got a premise for the game in mind, a strong opening scene and, and can get the players to create characters who've got a reason to interact with the problems that are presented by that opening scene, then I've got a game. And what about as a player when you come to improvise? I mean, I've kind of said earlier on that I think you're always improvising to a degree. But then I've had players who have started telling me about their uncle who's in the army and he does this. And I almost have to do a double take because I think, hold on, I don't remember that being in their background. But it all sounds very convincing as if they've just read it off the sheet and they're telling me about it. Oh, no, wait, they're just making this up. So I think in terms of character background and their equipment and things like this, you know, we can allow people quite a lot of leeway in making stuff up. I largely agree. Uh, it's difficult to find a balance sometimes, it, particularly if you're running an investigative game, because if you've got a fairly finely tuned backstory that ties in with a mystery and people start coming up with details that change or undermine aspects of that, then you sometimes have to either contradict them or adapt things on the fly. I have seen that disconnect come up a few times. I remember running a game where it was one of the very early playtests of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. I had the players create their characters, and someone had created a, a background connection to another NPC. And the player revealed partway through the game that this was actually... They'd been playing some sort of super-powered pulp campaign, and this, this NPC was their character in another game, and if things were going to go wrong, this NPC was going to swoop in and basically destroy the entire area using their airship or something like that. And it was sort of... We're playing very different games here. And our survey says... <coughs> yeah. So I guess what I want to know is what I can do to be better at improvising because I feel I'm all right when I've got a scenario on the page and I've read it through and I'm familiar with it. 
And I kind of feel that gives me license to then improvise because I've, I know I've got stuff as a GM that I can fall back on. I'm quite happy going off the page as long as there's a page to start with. I'm not quite so worried about that. There are certain tools or certain things you can do to prepare to improvise. A very basic one is just be prepared to steal. If you're stuck for a basic premise, steal something from a book or a film or a TV show. Not necessarily the entire premise, but just a little bit of it. We mentioned in the news segment uh, Seth Skorakowski's videos as well. He recently did one where he was talking about how he's a big fan of pre-written adventures, not just as as things to run, but as sources of inspiration Mm -hmm. and the fact that he'll steal elements from those as well. You're more than likely to be able to get away stealing from another scenario that you've either read or played rather than riffing off a film or TV show, which likely has more exposure that people might see the reference to. Uh, Maybe, but the thing is that by the time the players start interacting with whatever idea you've thrown out there, it's going to turn into something very different. And it occurs to me now that actually having what I referred to as the page of stuff gives me a setting and characters and material so I kind of have a handle on what this game is about and where this world is and what it's like so I know when I'm making stuff up I've kind of got a a framework to work around I've got a clearer picture of it in my head I think if I hit the table without that when something can be anything I'm like well it could just be anything I don't really focus on something you, you need a seed to start with, but, I mean, that seed can be something you come up with on the spot. But that's you, what I'm you, not very good at. Starting with a blank page and hitting the table would not work for me. All right. Um, that's one of the reasons that I hated playing Primetime Adventures, because everybody would be like, oh, what do you want to play? And I'd be like, I don't care. You know, just whatever. Just let's have a game and a setting and something. And given that just a massive menu of anything doesn't really inspire me i've I've had that in restaurants where it's been paralysis of choice yeah uh, where there's been so many options on the menu i just go i don't care just pick something so i want a much more limited palette to work with and that's what having i mean it could be just some notes that i've made or it could be a published scenario it could be either but i want something to sort of get my teeth into and then i can expand from there but I think with improvisational stuff, I mean, you use the example of, of primetime adventures, you still get that. It's just that it's a more collaborative thing. So, say, in a primetime adventures pitch session, you get someone who sort of says, all right, yeah, I, I want to play a science fiction game. Yeah, I, I, I watched Firefly recently. Can we do something along those lines? And suddenly you've got a basic premise there. Someone else will sort of say, right, uh, can we throw in something about an alien invasion? Add that element onto there. And, you know, someone else says, yeah, in in terms of tone, you know, I, I want it to be perhaps slightly more horror-based, like the Alien or Aliens films. And I just want to get past that process, because it just leaves me cold. Really? Oh, yeah, no, no. That, that, that's, that's so frustratingly dull. Oh, no, that that's, just, that's the most exciting part for me. Yeah. I mean, I can see it's different strokes for different yeah. folks, right? But that bit, I just want to get past that and have the game. I like the idea of the creative challenge of being given a bunch of disparate elements and sort of trying to stitch that together into something on the fly. I'm siding with Paul on this. <laughs> I would rather just have a solid premise from the start and get playing. Oh, no. No, mm. I mean, as, as a role player in general, I, I, I role play uh, yeah, as, as a GM as well as a player to, to make stuff up, and that's making stuff up. In terms of prep, when I would sit down, whether it be a 
published scenario or just one that I'm creating from notes, the big stammering point for me is names. Yeah. I was going to say particularly of different periods or cultures, but even just like modern day names. I mean, you can't have every other guy called Bob. There's his wife, Bobarella. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it might as well be. Um, so you just, I just end up coming up with these ridiculous names. If I'm having to improvise, I would just call upon names of people that I knew at school because I don't game with people that I was at school with, so they're not going to know those names. And what I really rely on is just making a, a list of names at the bottom of my notes so that I can just call upon those. And, oh, I need a name of some woman. Oh, I'll just call her that one off the list. And then I just jot alongside yeah. shopkeeper or whatever she was in the game just so that I remember for next time. I normally end up with NPCs that I know are going to meet a grisly death just naming them after people I know at work. <laughs> it's very satisfying. Yeah, I, I, I'll get names from all over the place. I'll look for birth and death records. And th these things are readily available online. They're absolutely perfect. I mean, particularly if you can get it right down to the region or even the city. And so I'll just quite often you know, find those and just put together you know, a table of about 20 male and 20 female names and just, just pick those out mm -hmm. as I need them. So we've got lists of names. We've got incorporating stuff from films or other scenarios that you can inject. Are there other techniques mm. that you would bring to the table with you, either as a player or a GM, that you can pass on? Well, to prepare, another thing that I've always found useful is maps. You know, for example, back in the days I ran RuneQuest uh, at university... The RuneQuest 2nd Edition had a map of Praxnit that had all these evocative place names and in most cases didn't have very much detail about them. That sense of place and these, these evocative names made it very easy to make stuff up about these. So players would go to a new location and I suddenly have to think about what kind of place that was. And, you know, I'd just come up with a few details. That would be enough of a prompt. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it would start turning into a setting. Right, so I guess maps and handouts and props can inspire yeah. some improvisation and and also random tables i mean this is a, a very osr thing and we've seen a big resurgence of this recently <laughs> using random tables to procedurally generate a game i know i've recommended it on the the podcast before vornheim I think is the single most useful RPG book that I, I own. It is just a, a relatively slim volume full of random tables for generating NPCs, locations, city districts on the fly, you know, events. You don't have to have anything prepared. You, know, you just roll some dice and you've got a game on the fly. The one thing I'd be wary of coming on another table-based incident that's happened in a Lamentations game was beware exactly what's on your tables because sometimes they just don't make any fucking sense. What was the incident that you had in the jungle? With the manatee? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> manatee from nowhere. What the hell? Walking through the jungle. Yeah. It was a bit strange, but... Yeah. But on the other hand, when you've got really weird occurrences like that, I mean, it, it depends. If you're trying to run a serious game, then yes, that, that might undermine the tone you're trying to build. <laughs> But if you've got something really weird that comes out of nowhere, then I mean that's the kind of creative spur that I love. And it's sort of, right, how can I make this work? How can I make this make sense? And I don't know. I, I really like stuff like that. And if we go back to OD&D, that had like wandering monster tables, mm -hmm. which were, you know, improvise and encounter effectively. And also, the other thing that I liked from that was that it had reaction tables. So you'd roll 2d6 to see how the 
monster or npcs reacted to your player characters mm. and that could be friendly that could be neutral that could be confrontational you know that that was a useful little thing because it sometimes there'd be some goblins and you might roll friendly and it'd be like well that oh that's interesting because you know why are they friendly what do they want you know and it would just kind of put you down a different track to the one that you might automatically think oh it's going to be a fight i would however counted in some degree of caution there i one of the least satisfying convention games i've played was with a, a gm who used reaction tables or reaction roles for every single npc for example you know meet a new npc we'd we'd role play a bit with them perhaps make an even an appropriate skill role to try to win them over and then the gm would just roll some dice and say nah it doesn't like you it just felt like it immediately undercut everything that had gone before so I'd say, you know, use them intelligently, use them sparingly, don't use them as a substitute for role-playing. I just like the idea of a friendly beholder walking down the road just says, Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah. nice day. Yeah, and then floats on by. Yeah, why not? <laughs> That's fun, right? <laughs> well, that puts me in mind, Scott, of another technique that I think the masters of improvisation must be stand-up comedians, right, mm. on a stage in front of a live audience. The key thing that I take away from seeing some of those people is that their sharpness and clarity of mind in taking in and reacting to what people say. And the chief thing there, I think, is listening. Yes. And they totally take in the smallest comment and process it at lightning speed and their creativity and improvisation and wits or, you know, will come out with something funny in response. You know, I clearly don't have that talent but what i can take from that is the listening and all too often i feel i don't really pay enough attention to what the other people are saying i'm thinking about what i'm going to do next as a player and i'm not really listening to what other people are doing so i'm trying to foster that talent to actually listen more to what the gm has said what the other players have said and I think that's an important part in the improvisation that you're building on what people have just done and reacting to it and working together to create story. Well, and as you say, building upon it, and th that's another very important aspect, which is if you've got an idea in, in mind about what's going to happen next, I mean, say you, whether you're a player, whether you're a GM, an unexpected situation has come up. Uh, let's say you have just met this, this friendly beholder. And you, you you think that, right, you know, ob obviously this is some distraction, the real threat is down the corridor somewhere, and you know, they're going to be taken in by the friendly beholder, and, and you know, they'll follow him down the corridor, and then you know, things are going to go south. Players, on the other hand, you know, sort of interact with a bit, a, a bit, perhaps make a really good skill roll, and sort of say, right, okay, let's all go down the tavern together. And you think, but, but yeah, I've got that encounter back there. Yeah, I, I, I really want to force them into doing that. But it's this idea that, no, yeah, I'm going to build upon what they've said. I'm going to drop my idea. I'm going to roll with what's just happened. And I find this running Call of Cthulhu scenarios, particularly convention games, which are one shots that we might run a few times. Well, I think we all do this, right? And something particularly interesting happens, and it may not be overly improvised, it may be part of the scenario, and I feel a drive to let the next group enjoy that and, you know, yes. sort of direct it towards that. And sometimes that will happen again. But if I have to contrive it to and sort of lever it towards that happening, 
it doesn't really work. The the same emotional impact isn't there or it's kind of transparent that I'm pushing it in that direction. So I think it's that sense of going with the flow, if you like, of sort of feeling where things are going. And it's a perhaps a small part of improvisation, but it's that working with the direction that everybody's going in and, and not kind of p- trying to pull it in the direction you want it to go. Yeah, I remember there was some some advice that Malcolm Craig put in uh, Hot War, um, which, you know, he's not the first person to have written this, but I just thought he, he summed it up very nicely, which was, you know, create situations, not stories. And, yeah, that's what it boils down to. If if you've got that idea that I'm going to steer them down here because that's what was fun before, you're creating a story. And stories are passive experiences for the people playing them. But you create a situation, you know, problems that they've got to resolve or, you know, a complex situation they find themselves in the middle of with lots of people with different agendas and stuff like that. And that's that's where, you know, a story happens organically. And, and, you know, that... That is the richest playground for improvisation you can have. And what about as a player? What can I do as a player? Because I don't really approach the table with preparation. I don't, you know, make lists of names or, you know, or, well, I guess I might bring stuff in from other sources, films and things as inspiration for the way that I play my character or the way I deal with situations that arise. I don't know. What, what can we offer players as advice for improvisation? So one thing that I've seen some players at my tables do is that when I give them backgrounds to their characters they read first and then move on to character sheets afterwards, certain people will highlight or underline keywords or phrases that they become the points which they then bounce off. Mm. They, they will accentuate those particular facets of either their background or their personality, how they've acted in certain instances before that's been described there, and then use that as a template for them to then play the character when the game starts. You often use laminated character sheets, so they're the same thing you're giving to different people. And I guess that's a good illustration, that you're giving the same character in the same scenario to two different people. And do you sometimes find that they're very different characters that they're portraying? Oh, wildly different. Sometimes I give them options as to how they want to set their character up. One main example I can think of from one of the recent games I've run, one of the characters is a single father. And the option is, you've been invited to this reading of this will. What are you doing with the kid? Are you bringing them along? Are you arranging childcare for them? What are you doing? Right. And I've had players go one way and likewise go the other way as well. And that's an instant license to improvise to a degree. Yeah. And then bring something in or not bring it make, in. Make their life a living hell with a kid in the back seat of the car singing on to let it go, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the other important thing, you're talking about playing a pre-gen, but I think if you're creating your own characters, which is a much more common experience, then as, as a player, if you're giving yourself some tools from which to improvise, the most important thing, I think, more than pages of backstory and lots of NPC connections and stuff like that, is having a character who wants something, a motivation. If the character has got a goal, even if it's a fairly petty one, it drives them forward and it also gives them um, you know, a spin and angle on their interaction with NPCs and the world in general. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a series of rules, something like eight rules uh, for short story writers. One of the ones in there is that you know, in, in any given scene, the main character should want something, even if it's just a glass of water. Vincent Baker's Dogs in the Vineyard brings this in with NPCs, right? So I think that is very much the case because I've played games where I haven't really come up with a motivation for my character and it wasn't really presented to me in the scenario particularly. 
so you can just feel a bit aimless and then you don't really feel inspired to improvise stuff because you don't really know where you're going or what you're doing so i think that's good advice i mean the most basic thing in D is i want to collect gold okay well that's a motivation but I'm thinking about, for example, you've started running Maze of the Blue Medusa at MKRPG recently. I was creating a character and I thought, you know, what, what would be a fun angle to play? And I just thought, someone who wants to become a dungeon architect, you know, he's, you know, I figure this is going to be a mega dungeon we're going into. And rather than just sort of passively going around and killing monsters and collecting treasure, that what he really wants to do, his motivation is to understand how dungeons work, understand how this dungeon works, and also understand the power hierarchy there so when you can find out who's in charge of the whole thing you can you know sort of say oh you know i, I want to build dungeons for you mm. and and that's proven to be a, you know, a fun thing to do and it's, it's colored my interaction with every npc so far yeah and it gives a lot more for you to springboard off in terms of making stuff up and then having a continuity of character and interaction with npcs and so on yeah i think there is one factor more than anything else that is important to imp- improvisation i mean particularly as a gm but also as a player which is self-confidence. And the, I mean, this is something that you probably have to build up over time. But it's the ability to trust yourself to improvise. I think particularly if you're a, a beginning GM and particularly a young GM, it, it can be difficult sometimes to trust that the words that come out of your mouth or the ideas that you come up with on the fly and so on will be any good. Once you've you've learned to trust your ability to say something interesting or come up with some detail on the fly that's that's then going to spin off into something else then that transforms the game and i imagine to some degree it's a skill and like many others the more you practice it the better you get at it so it's partly confidence and it's partly practice as well so it's like you say having the confidence to actually put yourself forward there's only like four or five other people at the table you may know them, you may not, but just say what you're thinking. Don't hold back on it too much. Let it out and see how it goes. But you've also got to trust yourself to come out with details that will either take off during the game or, or sink without a trace. Maybe, you know, you've got a bunch of characters in the Call of Cthulhu game who go into a speakeasy. Say, say it's a, you know, a, a, a nightclub and there's, there's a nightclub singer and she's singing some very strange song and it's sort of stirring up memories with the player characters and you know, some of the words don't sound quite like English and, and you know, this is just a detail you've thrown in and, to try to build up a bit of atmosphere. Maybe the players will go and, and try to investigate this and find out why the singer is singing the song, what the song all means, and you'll have to come up with those details and build on them. Or perhaps they'll just sit there, have their drinks, go and talk to the person they came to, to talk to and, and bugger off. But it's having the confidence to throw in those those details and trust that if they go somewhere, you'll be able to do something with them. And if they don't land, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, what is the worst that can happen? When can these things go wrong? They can go wrong when they're tonally inappropriate or uh, self-contradictory. This is something that I keep having to catch myself with when I improvise, which is making notes as I go along. Let's say the group of investigators go off to talk to an underworld contact. They go to this this CD nightclub and they meet this guy in a, a, a shadowy booth and start talking to him. I hadn't thought of who this guy is before. 
But all of a sudden, they're now talking to him. They're trying to get some information about where they can find the Maltese Shoggoth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just thinking he looks like Sydney Green Street. So. <laughs> yes. I'm not quite sure why he's, he's dealing with them. Maybe they're paying him. Maybe they've got some leverage over him. Or maybe he's trying to manipulate them. Whatever it is, yeah, let's say I come up with that reason on the fly and they think they've paid him for this information, but he's secretly trying to manipulate them into going off into a trap. And so, yeah, I I think, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And so I'll just make a quick note of that so I don't forget. Because if I have him then behave one way and, and they encounter him later and he does something that goes completely against that and there's no good reason for that then yeah, you know, maybe that can you know foster some interesting interactions. Or maybe you know, I can turn that, that contradiction into a plot point later. But more often than not, I'll just think there and think, oh, fuck, I've screwed that up. What I get out of that is a, another tip of making notes as you make stuff yes. up because you will forget inevitably certain points. And I think that's good for the players as well to take notes of names and places they went and so on because A you get that continuity and b allows you to reincorporate those things again which kind of enhances the whole world and make everything feel more real i mean that sense of consensus that sense of consensus reality is a really important one as well let's say that well yeah we have a group of adventurers in a DD game that go into a blacksmith shop as a gm i might just say all right you, you go into the blacksmiths and then you know sort of role play the blacksmith or But I never at any stage describe what the blacksmith shop looks like. But then you as the players have all got your own picture in in your head. And we talked about this, and and you you sort of described what your idea of a blacksmith shop looked like, didn't you, Paul? On the farm where I grew up, there was an old blacksmith shop that hadn't been used for decades, and it was full of rusty bits of metal strewn all over the floor, and the roof was caving in and, and everything. So that's kind of my default position although i would kind of if you were describing the working one i'd think how it would have been back then you know in terms of this kind of shared vision that we kind of have of the place as you say scott we don't necessarily all add loads of detail in or describe it but i think i kind of picture it if you like as a venn diagram so there's scott's version of what this place is like there's matt's version there's my version and we each perhaps add in little details and those circles overlap a bit and we have to make sure that we're kind of on the same page. But there's probably a lot of it that if we were to go away and have somebody render an actual image of it or put it on stage, it would look quite different, but that's okay. Mm. It's a question of when you're improvising a location like that or improvising an NPC or anything else, sort of thinking about what details you want to throw in there because those details will shape the player's perceptions. If you want to fall back on the idea that, yes, everyone can visualise a blacksmith shop and it doesn't matter if they're all different, that's fine. But if you, you know, say, improvise, you know, the blacksmith shop and sort of say, oh, yeah, but this this is an unusual one because, you know, they make all the weapons out of silver. Once you've got that detail in there, it's very much going to shape what everyone else thinks of it. All those of us suddenly start looking for the stockpiles of silver that he wants to melt down and fill the pockets. Yeah. <laughs> Another example of that would be, you know, you go to see old man Mason or whatever in the in the house at the top of the hill. and well, you're we, in his, we try to avoid him. I know. <laughs> and you're in his library and you're all sat down and he's reading to you from some old book and suddenly, you know, his eyes bulge and lights start to appear around his head and, you know, fangs appear or something. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to hit him. What are you going to hit him with? We haven't established what's in the room, but maybe there's a poker by the fire. Maybe there's a coal scuttle. Maybe there's a typewriter. 
as a GM, I'd be quite happy for the player to sort of say they pick up whatever it is. And as long as it seems quite feasible, you know, just incorporate it. This this is something I've seen with, I think, less experienced and less confident GMs, that they're perhaps more quicker to say no in situations like that, that if they didn't think of it, it's not real and it's not there. So, yes, all right, I'll pick up the poker from the fireplace and hit him in the head. Well, I didn't say there was a fireplace. Yeah, uh, you, you said it's a library in an old house. There probably is one. Well, there isn't a poker there. Uh, yeah, I have played with GMs like that over the years, but n- not for a long time. And it's it, yeah, it really is. I think the less experienced ones. There are times when the GM will probably have to say no when the player improvises. Mm. One example that I was faced with is one of the players. I mean, hats off to her. She was she was a really creative player. She just said, "As they're wandering around the old house, that she'd been looking for certain things, they're wondering where the owner had gone," and then just said. Oh, I went upstairs in, into one of the rooms and I found this journal of hers. And there's me thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> you, no, you didn't go into that, that. The journal is there in a different room. No one's found it yet. And she's saying, oh, but it explains everything about her past, uh, about the past week and what's, what's happened here. And I, and I just had to say, yeah, it's like you're reading my scenario notes. That's great, but you ain't found it yet. <laughs> so that's what you said. Yeah, it's yeah. say good good on you. You've you've latched onto something that's here. Now now find it. And was there anything you said to give her license to say that she'd found this journal or just just made that no, up? No, she literally just said, I found this. Right. So that's a good example mm. of a fairly what I would say a fairly extreme case of somebody making something up in a game. And, and, and in certain games, I mean, that can really work. It's just, you know, as we said, in in investigative games, it, it can pose a real problem. Yeah, I guess in any game people could make something up that seems to have gone beyond what is acceptable, either because it's kind of too gonzo or it's too much power or it's just inappropriate. Yeah, genre-breaking. Yeah, yeah. so there are lots of reasons. So what do we do as a GM to deal with that? I mean, Matt, you said that you... Yeah, I gave gave her the kind kind of a little bit of reward saying, that's a really good idea. It's here somewhere in the house, but you haven't got it. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so you throw them a line mm-hmm. and say it is here somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's good. I mean, the other option is to say, no, sorry, you haven't found a book. But then that feels a bit like, oh, yeah. I was trying to sort of get into the spirit of it and make stuff up, but he doesn't want me to do that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, sort of building consensus and sort of saying, you know, something along the lines of, yes, that's a good idea, but, you know, can we, can we perhaps handle it in a slightly different way works much better. I not not just from a game point of view, but from a social point of view as well. It's just more polite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is a game about making, you know, sitting around the table, rolling dice and making stuff up is the heart of it, right? So yeah. you don't really want to shut that down. I think another very useful tool that we can use is uh, leading questions. Again, going back to, you know, you're running Blue Medusa at the, the club. You started off the game by asking us a bunch of four questions that basically set up the opening situation. We could have given very different answers to that, and you you, you ended up having to improvise an opening scene based on those questions. But it set defined parameters. I mean, there's two things there, I think, Scott. One is to ask open questions, absolutely, of your players to help them embellish their backgrounds. So... Matt, you're playing a gangster in my 1920s Call of Cthulhu game, let's Woo-hoo, say. I've got a Tommy gun. Who's the last person you killed? <sighs> Landlord. Okay, and we get you to embellish a little bit about yeah, that why, character. Why, why did you kill them? Because ha- I had this damn landlord that I really <laughs> couldn't get on with. <laughs> <laughs> I, and what did you do with the body? Hmm. 
Wood chipper, they're always good. I heard a friend up north in Fargo use one of those to a really great effect. Or even better, maybe, what are you going to do with the body that you've got in your boot? Going down to the hardware shop to find myself a wood chipper. (laughs) And 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 now suddenly Matt's throwing things at me that I can react to and just incorporate. And it's not going to necessarily be a massive part of the scenario, but it kind of paints a bit of character and exchange. I like that. Well, the thing is, by, by asking that set of questions there... I, I don't know. I'd, I'd actually feel fairly confident improvising a game based on that. So it's like, what are you going to do about the body? And now all of a sudden, I'm going to throw complications and barriers. You've got a character who wants to do something. They, they want to get rid of the body. They've got a problem, which is the body. I've suddenly got license to, you know, say, say, have NPCs who are coming around looking for the landlord. Or maybe the landlord's not quite as dead as he thought they were. He's <laughs> only mostly dead. Yeah. All these complications suddenly create story. And one other bit of advice I would offer is um, Graham Walmsley put out a a fairly slim volume, oh gosh, 10 years or so ago, maybe more, uh, called Play Unsafe, where he basically took a lot of uh, techniques from improvisational theatre and improvisational comedy and reframed them in role-playing terms. I mean, it it really is a short book. I mean, it's uh, 60 or 70 pages. Um, and it's it's really useful, uh, and it covers a lot of the stuff we've talked about today and and other techniques. If you're looking either as a player or as a GM at at you know looking for tools you can use at the table uh, to to up your improvisation game, I really do recommend it. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. And of course, as we've mentioned in a number of previous episodes, we are busy putting together issue four of the Blasphemous Tome. This is the backer-only fanzine that we produce for these lovely people who give us money via Patreon. If you want to see how you can secure your own copy or copies, uh, do take a look at the show notes. Uh, We'll put links in there that not only tell you what levels get what numbers of tomes and what types of tomes, but we'll also give you a little sneak preview of, of what to expect from the latest issue. Meanwhile, on social media, I'm pleased to see that we have a new review on iTunes, courtesy of Mothrai, or as we know him, Lee. Hi, Lee. Thank you very much. He says, still keeping it squamous. Been a fan right from the start. Pretty much the go-to UK Lovecraftian podcast these days. Here's wishing them many more episodes. Well, thank you very much, Lee. We we really appreciate that. And we really appreciate every review that people have written for us. I mean, these reviews are not only wonderful boosts for our egos, but they're great ways for new listeners to find us. So if you want to spread the, the, the good word, um, we, we'd appreciate it. The good word of Jackson Elias. <laughs> We've also had some feedback on our recent episode about Nathan Ballingrid's short story, Wild Acre, uh, particularly over on G+. Most of the comments there are too long and detailed to relate here, a bit like G+, in general, really. Um, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> no, seriously, I found that there was a commentary about this a little while ago where they were saying that if you were to look on average at the lengths of posts compared to different social media platforms, oh, right. generally you'll find G Plus has the longest thread, the longest posts. Yeah, I, actually, that's yeah. one of the reasons why I like it because it's in depth discussions. Yeah, no, that's yeah. an interesting observation. I think yeah. that's why I've been getting into Twitter recently. Yeah, <laughs> suits your attention. Span. It does. Yeah, I can, I can buy that. Evelyn Moreau over on G Plus said. 
I think that for exploring the consequences of horror, the players must be aware that the investigation will probably have no resolution. The temptation to try to read the GM's and the scenario's expectations is too strong and often creates a tension between personal scenes and the need to complete the scenario. Does she mean there that there should be no clear resolutions kind of predefined? I, well, I think it's more, I mean, this is what we were talking about in the case of Wildacre, the fact that there isn't a traditional resolution or character resolution to the story means that it's all the more unsettling. That I, I guess in role-playing games, what you had there is more often than not a clear goal that the characters are trying to accomplish. The scenario feels complete when you wrap up that goal. As a player, you're almost hardwired to do that. If you had a particular goal to sort out in a scenario, say the classic Call of Cthulhu trope of, you know, there is an evil cult trying to summon a beastie from beyond space and time that will eat us all. We must try to interrupt this ritual somehow. If that were frustrated to the extent where, let's say, you know, things went off in a different direction and you never even got to meet the cult and, and other complications came in and you didn't get that resolution... Would you find that frustrating? Would it build your sense of unease? Um, you know, w- would it work at all? Because it's the kind of thing that you know, probably would work really well in a story, but in a game, would it work for you? It's a tough one. I think it really just depends on on the game and on the story. Really, it's going to be very context dependent. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it could be the best game ever, or it could really suck. I couldn't say. And Anthony Adams, also on G Plus, said. It would be interesting to consider the effect from two different perspectives. One of someone who is close to the traumatised person, and one who is the victim of violence. Imagine Tara eventually digging into the causes of Jeremy's downward spiral. Perhaps he has been arrested after a series of violent outbursts and now has a felony record or has gone missing. She takes seriously some insane drunken ramblings of his after uncovering with perhaps a library use skill and eventually heads out to the woods herself still unbelieving but desperate to understand her husband's lunacy her own shock should she discover the creature is real might be doubled from the sudden realization that jeremy's pain has genuine if supernatural origins now, I think that's actually a fairly classic setup that we see in a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios. That, you know, someone has gone missing or someone has gone insane and the, the circumstances of it are foggy or, you know, mysterious. And that you're investigating this and, mm. you know, perhaps finding out this person you've, you've got a, a, a connection to has undergone some kind of experience that most people will never undergo. I think that is a setup I've seen in a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Yeah, I think that would work. Over on Facebook, uh, Richard Thornley says, Thanks for introducing us to Nathan Ballingrud's incredible short fiction. I was intrigued by your Wild Acre episode, devoured North American lake monsters, which completely exceeded my expectations, and just read the insanely inventive Skull Pocket this afternoon. Phew! I cannot wait for his novel and more from Hobbs Landing. Please! Yeah, and Lucy, my wife, also listened to the episode, and she's now most of the way through North American Lake Monsters and very much enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's spread the word. Mm. (laughs) 
Well, then, just to wrap things up, a uh, question for both of you, which is, I mean, after you know, you're both very experienced GMs, but you know, we seem to have come at this from very different angles with how much we like to improvise. Would you both say that you're now completely comfortable with improvisation, or is this something that takes you out of your comfort zone? I like to have the prep in place so that I can improvise more easily. If that safety net goes away, it suddenly becomes a very, oh crap, I'm out at sea on a blank page, what the hell do I do? Um, so I like to improvise within my my own limits. But do you ever find yourself completely stuck? I mean, let, let's say that players go totally off-piste with what you've got prepared and uh, follow some, some plot thread or red herring that you hadn't anticipated. Are you comfortable working around that and creating something on the fly, or do you tend to find yourself you know, shepherding them back towards what you had in mind? Something like this did arise in a recent playtest I've been doing, where there's a throwaway comment about what happens to um, an NPC. And they decided, the players decided, right, we're going to go looking for him. I think, shit. Because there's no detail given as to what happens to this NPC. Uh, this, this is well, taking any, um, an existing piece of work and trying to do it in a, in a slightly different way. So, yeah, finding that the, there was that angle that I hadn't really thought of what kind of direction it could go in. So I, I had to turn around and say, look, I don't want to shortchange you. I think this could be an interesting avenue to go down but I'm not prepared for it. So I, I did have to pull the parachute and get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, partly was that you felt that it was going to open up a big new avenue of exploration that you didn't really have time for? or Yeah, because the, the particular angle they were following could give a vast insight into more of the wider story that was going on. And it could end up being a shortcut in some ways, but it's something I'd very need, very seriously need to consider what could be the outcomes of such an investigation. I didn't want to make that up on the fly because it could undermine the whole rest of the story. Well, that's yeah. interesting because, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that as a GM I live for in, in situations like that, where they go down that avenue I hadn't expected and I've suddenly got to try to think, oh, how does this fit into everything else and come up with a, a creative way of making it fun? I don't necessarily worry too much about whether it's going to shortcut the rest of the game. This is something that took me an embarrassingly long time to realise, which is there's nothing wrong with getting to the good stuff. There's this feeling, I think, sometimes with investigative games that you've got to earn your way to certain parts of the game I, I found more often than not if you do you know find a way of shortcutting or getting to those good bits then they'll quite often spiral you know and, and build and and other things will come out of there and you'll like, perhaps even sometimes end up with a more satisfying game but i think what matt's describing is tell me if i'm right matt is that it's a scenario there and this character is perhaps quite a significant NPC in the story and knows a lot of stuff and has a lot of stuff around that character, mm -hmm. but you haven't looked into that. You, you kind of really need to know a lot more about that character because he's kind of a linchpin in the whole thing. Well, yes and no. They have a lot of background information into what's happening behind the scenario and what's, what's happened leading up to the scenario finally starting. Yeah. But also just the little seed that you have as to what's happened to them. I think could be a kernel for a really nice, interesting side adventure or side scenario. I didn't want to shortchange people for having to come up with something on the fly that I wouldn't be particularly, let's say, invested in and hadn't prepped as well as I would want to. So you don't trust yeah. yourself to be able to come up with those details on the fly? Not when it's something important like that. Right. If, it, if it's something small, fine. But something where it's that, that could be a really big cornerstone of a, um, of a big campaign, no. 
Yeah, because oh. I mean, I've been in games with you. The what was your one in Nameless Horrors? The one about the message of art, right? Yeah, it's not always totally apparent to me whether you're making stuff up. But I think you were at the, at the end. The sort of direction we took it. And I think afterwards you said we'd gone in a direction you hadn't expected and we're doing things and you were rolling with it. I think you're particularly good at that. Mm. And it's not apparent to me when you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, this is why I was kind of surprised when you said that, which is I've played campaigns with you where we've done things that you've completely been caught by surprise about and you've ended up having to improvise huge parts of the game. And I've never seen you have any problem with that. I know, that's, that's because for me it's a relatively small-scale thing. In the example, I'm, I'm deliberately trying to not say what it is. Yeah. Um, it's a particularly big campaign. Because mm. I've had bits. I think characters have, if you like, unlocked another bit of the puzzle and i know it's an important part that feeds out to other bits in other chapters and i'm like well actually i haven't really genned up on that if i have to make that up it's not necessarily going to mesh with the stuff that comes after it mm -hmm. exactly so i'm not in a position to be able to just go off and just improvise that because that's just not going to work yeah that, that's that's probably more eloquently getting across what i'm trying to describe yeah. okay that, yeah. that makes a bit more sense yeah yeah, um, so for, sm for smaller one-shots, you're fine. I'll gladly freewheel them for free fly. Yeah, if it's just a random thing you've thrown in and they, they spin off with it, then you can just fly with it. But if it, yeah. Um, I think particularly that happens in, maybe like in campaigns as well. Yeah. Well, how about you then, Paul? Uh, do, do you feel fairly comfortable uh, with large-scale improvisation or is this something you try to avoid? I guess I try to roll with what people are doing doing in scenarios particularly if they're one shots then i tend to have it planned out and then improvise around it but i know i've got something behind me to work with in more freewheeling games then i will improvise i guess it's when sometimes it's just small things like coming up with names or names of places or things that are appropriate that i don't know about one observation that i would make is i've played two games with people at the club and they were both published games and both of the bits that I enjoyed the most were bits that that GM had made up on the fly or perhaps not necessarily on the fly but bits they'd made up themselves and those were both bits that stood out to me as being much more engaging and much more fun. Yeah and I think that's a, a really important point. I mean I, I find myself often when I'm GMing stuff, I'll just go off script myself that I'll start changing details or throwing other locations or scenes in, even without the players prompting it. Partly because it keeps it fresh for me, because if I'm running the same scenario a number of times, I want to be challenged. I, if I know what's going to happen, I get bored. But also, I think it's you know exactly what you said there, Paul, that it then turns into, into a more dynamic give and take between the GM and the players, rather than, right, we'll move on to this scene, and this scene is where this happens. It suddenly becomes, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to react to what you're doing, you're going to react to what I'm doing, and this suddenly becomes something dangerous. And something you're more emotionally invested in as well, because you're yeah. kind of riding a wave of what's happening. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. I don't really know what to say now. Um, yeah. Should we uh, carry on? I don't know. Is there anything else on the script? Um, I'm just staring at a blank page here. Okay. I've got no clue. Good, good night, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, cheerio. Farewell. <laughs>
Tomes.com. Still keeping it squarmous.